think that was the key part of the success of the Instagram account was just being very open, sharing my successes, venting about my failures, and just modeling, you know, how, like, obviously, like, I saw accounts like Trevor Wilson and Maurizio Leo, and I saw, you know, what they were putting out there, and that was what I aspired to be, you know, something like that, something that was giving back to the community that I learned from. Like, that's, that's really the key for me at this point. This is the Sourdough Podcast, the show about the innovators, leaders, and creative trailblazers in our sourdough community and the stories behind the bread. On this episode of the Sourdough Podcast, Kristen Dennis of Foolproof Baking joins me to talk about her sourdough journey from biologist to social media sourdough guru. In this special interview, we review Kristen's most viewed YouTube sourdough tutorial and answer your listener questions. From starter maintenance to final bake, Kristen shares insights from her years of research and practice. It's the first time we've done anything like this on the podcast, so stick around. I learned a ton, and I know you will too. I wanted to take a moment to thank our newest sponsor, Bread Bosses, for helping to make this episode possible. Bread Bosses is a company that offers quality sourdough bread-making tools like proofing baskets, dough whisks, and more. They are dedicated to giving the best customer support and education, offering Bread Bosses baking courses and recipes free to all their customers. You can check them out at Amazon.com backslash Bread Bosses, and remember to use the code SOURDOUGH to get 10% off your order, and you'll be supporting the show when you do. I also wanted to say thank you to our most recent contributor to the podcast, Nadia Girard of Smyrna, Tennessee. Nadia says, thank you for what you do for the bread community. Linking bread bakers from around the world is a beautiful thing. I couldn't agree more, Nadia. It is my absolute privilege to connect with so many great bakers in our community and to speak with each of my guests. I hope I have the chance to try your amazing bread at Baked. If you are in the Smyrna, Tennessee area, do yourself a favor and track down Nadia at Baked. From the looks of her Instagram feed, she's the real deal. Thanks again, Nadia. Your sourdough looks amazing. And now, here's my interview with Kristen Dennis. My guest today is Kristen Dennis. Kristen is the sourdough-obsessed homebaker behind Foolproof Baking, the incredibly popular Instagram account and YouTube channel where she shares her sourdough wisdom with her hundreds of thousands of followers. Kristen has a PhD in biology and was a science editor before catching the sourdough bug. Kristen was recently featured on Forbes.com in an article about bread influencers and their rise to fame during lockdown. She is joining me today from her home in Chicago. Kristen, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, well, you know, you've probably been the most requested uh, (laughs) guest I've had over the years. And so, yeah, no, the honor is all mine. And it's great to finally get to talk with you and meet you. um, You too. Quote, unquote, in person. So. Um, well, you know, today we have something special planned, um, but before we get into that, I'm always interested to hear how people initially got into sourdough. Uh, do you think you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and what kind of led you to sourdough in the first place? Yes. Um, yeah. So at an early age, I was really interested in, in science actually. So my my grandfather has a PhD in science and my dad went into geology and 
I've always just had it in my mind that I wanted to be a microbiologist or an immunologist. That was like my track or even a medical doctor. But by the time I got to college, um, I ended up going the research route. It's like I joined a bunch of labs and um, I fell in love with the idea of doing research and, you know, thesis, defense and all of that stuff later down the line. So I went into to my doctorate program at Northwestern in Chicago um, in biology and I loved it there. I, th- I think that the principal investigator that uh, ran the lab, he really gave me sort of free reign to go out and, and you know, come up with my own questions and, and figure out my own experiments. And it was really kind of a cool experience in that regard. It really kind of set me up, I think, for thinking in a science, scientific manner. Um, so like doing science, science is like a verb. So like that, I think, has really helped me uh, down the line now that I'm, in, now that I'm doing sourdough bread. Mm-hmm. Um, one aspect of, of the graduate program that I really liked was I got to teach people in the lab. So whenever we had interns or like students coming in from the summer, I always was quick to grab them up and be like, I will train them. I want them yeah. under my wing. I want to, I want to teach. So teaching and then doing science were two key things in my life from a, from an early age, actually. Um, and yeah, I, I actually, I finished my doctorate, I, I defended, and a week later I had my, my son, who's now seven and a half. Oh, yeah. What's his name? Literally, literally like five days after I defended, I, I went into labor. So I was cutting it really wow. close there. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so actually, though, it was, it was interesting because I couldn't really, it wasn't easy for me to get back in to doing more research, to do a postdoc, mm. you know, these jobs, they require you to be in, in the lab for 10, 12 hours a day sometimes. And it's really, you are there until your experiment is done. So it wasn't flexible. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I, I instead, as you mentioned, I went into uh, science editing and actually I, the, the title of my LLC was called foolproof editing. Okay. Yeah. So that's actually where the name came from. My, my, my husband's father actually was like, foolproof is a cool name. <laughs> is a cool name. So I was like, yeah, uh-huh, I like that. Uh-huh. So I did that for about a year. So grant writing, uh, things like that, research paper editing, all that sort of thing, all that sort of stuff. And I wasn't in love with it. Mm-hmm. I really wasn't. It wasn't as interesting, I thought. And, and in the meantime, you know, this is like a couple years in after finishing my doctorate, I felt like I was I, I felt like I didn't know who I was anymore. You know, you have a baby mm, and you leave mm-hmm. your job and you're home and you're doing the stuff that you may not be in love with. And I was well, like, and you've accomplished lost. this huge, you know, you've been working your whole academic life yeah. for this one goal. Oh, there's layers of, you know, yeah. guilt in there too. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like how can I use what I know Yeah. and how can I use my training to do something that I'm really passionate about? And it all started, I think, with bread. I went to a, we rent out houses every summer um, and we invite our family and we all kind of like hang out, not this summer, of course, but mm. we'll kind of hang out and the, the little cousins and stuff can play together and, and it's a great bonding opportunity for our families. And my, my sister-in-law brought a loaf of bread to this, one of these house parties, house events. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I was like, I want to start making bread. This is so cool. So I got some instant yeast and I started making sandwich bread. And that was back in like 2016, 2017. So I'd been making bread for like a year. 
And I started hearing from friends and family who, who know that I'm in science. They're like, uh-huh. have you ever heard of sourdough? Like sourdough is a culture. <laughs> it's a culture of bacteria and yeast. Like you should totally try this out. And so um, around that same time too, my dad was diagnosed with celiac. Okay. Like, like he's in his sixties now, but he was diagnosed like late in life. Oh, wow. And then, then I really started to pay attention. I was like, you know, if I have this mutation that he has and I'm destined to have celiac myself, like I want to pr- try to eat, you know, naturally leavened, naturally fermented mm. breads mm-hmm. to protect myself and my family. So, you know, I, I bought my very first starter from King Arthur flour okay. company. They offer yeah. like a fresh starter. So I was working with that throughout the summer and I honestly just completely and deeply and utterly fell in love with, with sourdough. I, I like, just so you flavor. didn't go find a lab or something and start your own starter uh, on a petri dish. Not at first. <laughs> Not at first. <laughs> I I cheated. I cheated. So so yeah, I had this sourdough culture, and I I didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't know what I was doing. It came to me bubbly and strong, and I think I I I didn't do my best job researching what I was supposed to do, and so. But I had a method, you know, I'd feed it once a day, I'd leave it out on my counter uh-huh. um, and it was growing and it leavened me some bread. And I was, I was excited to offer that to my yeah. family and my, my friends and they were very nice to accept it and tell me it was delicious. So, <laughs> so uh, then I found like some Facebook groups and I, I started sort of diving a little deeper in, mm-hmm. uh, I guess this would be like 2018 ish and, or 2007, 2008, 2018. Yeah. And asking questions and learning. And I was like, you know, I should try this myself. I should make my own starter. And mm-hmm. actually, I just posted a story uh, yesterday night. Four years ago, yesterday, wow. was when I did my first uh-huh. float test for my current I saw, starter, yeah, Ozzy. I saw that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so cute. Uh- <laughs> Look, I thought you were making a cocktail or something. It was in like Oh, a- yeah, that's exactly how <laughs> it up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, then I found, you know, I found Instagram. And then everything just sort of started falling into place. For yeah. Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, tons of accounts on there. Trevor Wilson, Maurizio Leo, mm-hmm. um, Autumn Kitchen. Like these, these accounts were a gold mine of information. I started off posting on Instagram as like a, a portfolio, like an art portfolio or a way to, for me to keep track of my bakes. Was you this know, a here's now, a picture. here's an important question. Is this, was this a separate account, a, a bread uh, account, or was this your personal so account? So I had, I had an Instagram page, as everyone probably does, who has a Facebook account, but I didn't know what it was, and I it was under my um, my like personal name, like mm-hmm. <laughs> like just like my personal account. So I switched it over before I posted anything. I switched it over to the foolproof baking name, and my sister taught me how to use hashtags. Posted some pictures. <laughs> so you were really was, new to the whole. I had no uh, idea social media. <laughs> He's like, it's to catalog. It's to catalog. And I was like, oh, okay. Like it, it made sense. It made, <laughs> it took me a little, maybe a mm-hmm. month to get going, but I started posting and I started noticing right away that people were, they were interested in the bread. Oh, that's pretty bread. But they were more interested in how to make that bread. Yeah. So they started asking little questions and they were common. They were common questions. How long did you bulk? What was the temperature you bulked? Which sort of, you know, when you teach something to other people, you always learn a lot yourself in return, mm-hmm. right? So like I started realizing, you know, I need to be recording this stuff. I need to be recording temperature and bulk mm-hmm. length and how many coil folds I'm doing and write down what flour I'm using and, and how much. And 
you know, I was doing that for me, but I started posting that on the site. Okay. And I think that's, I think that was the key part of the success of the Instagram account was just being very open, sharing my successes, venting about my failures and just modeling, you know, how, like, obviously like I saw accounts like Trevor Wilson and Maurizio Leo, and I saw, you know, what they were putting out there. And that was what I aspired to be, you know, something like that, something that was giving back to the community that I learned from. Yeah. That's, that's really the key for me at this point. Yeah, no, I feel like that's so many of our experiences have been the same and, and, uh, finding this little community out there and then finding that they're, interested in the same uh, things that we are and, and wanting to share that information and, and wisdom as they've gained it themselves. And uh, it's just, yeah, that's, that's how I got my start. Same way. I was just like tinkering, you know, in my house or apartment and, you know, making my own starter and then finding this community and realizing that they're all, you know, got the same bug yeah. that we do and want to yeah. and why not share, share that. Yeah, exactly. Why not share, you know, and, and in the process form this, like become part of this ongoing community of bakers. Like it connects you with other people. I'm a very introverted person. So I, you know, Ryan, my husband, he likes to go to parties and like, he'll have, he'll like to go out and like have these big dinners and stuff with with lots of friends. And for me, I'm like the type of person, I just want to stay home. I'm like, (laughs) I'm nervous to go out. I got a little social anxiety, you know, but this is the perfect medium for the the standard introvert. Mm. You know, you can still share and be respectful and, and, encouraging and and feel like you're part of something bigger but you don't have to even leave your home you can can just do it all from the safety of your couch that's so funny i've had a similar conversation with my wife recently um and yeah i started my cottage bakery last year and i just you know we we moved towns and so really you know this has been our one kind of major outlet this last year to like connect with people have somewhat of a social life and like get to know our community. And I've just been telling my wife, like, I, cause I'm also naturally an introvert, but I feel like uh, maybe our roles have reversed because she works from home and I, you know, I have this, you know, uh, cottage bakery and I just feel like I can talk about sourdough with anybody, go into crazy amounts of nerdy detail. It's just something I get excited about and I enjoy talking with people about yeah. And it just brings out the extrovert in me. And so, yeah, I've had a similar experience with Cyrus. That's true. Like the connection when I do like my, my video consults, meeting people from around the world this way, it's, it's safe, but it's also, I'm, I'm just so grateful to have the platform that I have so that I can stay connected. I'm very grateful for what mm-hmm. I have. Like this mm-hmm. is a very important part of my life now. And when COVID hit and we're all home or quarantined, I still had like my life really didn't change that much as I stayed home and continued to bake and share and just be, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the ability to be able to bake and then to share and help other people because mm. I think baking, you know, it calms people down. It, mm-hmm. it makes people happy. So yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, part of the, the experience of getting into sourdough and, sh- and sharing all those uh, learning experiences is failure, you know, and, mm. and that's really the primary method of learning sourdough. Like, there's just no way around it. You're not going to just boom. You know, well, I've seen some people, and it drives me crazy when I do see their first loaf, and it's like, you know, a hundred times better than my first 
20 loaves, oh, you know, yeah. but oh, yeah, most people all the time. Yeah. Amazing. Their luck does play a role, but, um, most people, there's a lot of failure. And so one of our, my listener questions was from colony culture and he asks, uh, what has been your biggest sourdough failure and, and what did you learn from it? Um, which for probably most sourdough bakers, I imagine that's hard to narrow down to your singular biggest failure, but <laughs> yeah. Can you think so, of one? Uh, so, okay. I first need to say, so it took me over a year before I really started getting a handle on my ferment. And this is, you know, another reason why I wanted to put the content out there. I don't want people to struggle like I did. I had no idea what I was doing and it was frustrating. You know, you Mm. get, you spend seven hours doing something, babying this little dough, and then you bake it and you pull off that lid and you're like, oh, anticlimactic. Yeah. (laughs) Or it didn't rise or, you know, so what I like, what I like to do is I like to encourage people to frame their failures as, you know, a way to learn, a learning experience. Mm -hmm. So think of them as happy accidents because now you know what not to do. And I think you, as you said, you need to make these mistakes in order to know what, what to do. So that's, I wanted to start off there. So, I mean, early on, I did not control for temperature. I didn't even know that was a part of it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what I was doing hot summer days, winter day. I don't know what I was thinking, the reason why my ferments were off, but temperature is key. So I had lots of failures in, in terms of overly speedy ferments or under fermentation, things like that. Also, it was a big thing for me to start watching. Like I, you, you, you read a recipe and they're like, you got to bulk this for four hours and then proof it for two hours and mm. then bake it. I don't like telling people anymore you know, you got to bulk for six hours because it's totally, we're going to, I'm sure we're going to talk about bulk fermentation later, but you got to watch your dough. Your dough has signs of what it needs. And so you need to focus on the dough, not the clock. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, just knowing now what I know about sourdough starter care and maintenance and optimization, that was really so important to have a really active starter. Yes, yes, yes. Before you go to bake. Okay, so, but you want to know specific disasters. What's, yeah, come so, on. Give me the yeah. one that you're just like I've got, I've got shaking a couple, your head. Right? I've got a couple that come to mind. So okay. early on, I was baking with a Dutch oven, plopped my dough in the pan, totally forgot to use parchment because someone <laughs> said you don't need to use parchment. So I baked the loaf, uh, take the lid off, looked semi-good, baked it, took it out and I start pulling the loaf out of the Dutch oven and it's completely stuck to the bottom of my Dutch oven. <laughs> and I was, it was one of my better bakes. I remember. Uh-huh. I mean, this thing was stuck. I, I had, there was nothing I could do. I ripped yeah. it off. I had to soak the pan overnight. Oh, no. grind, like grind away <laughs> a little bit. That was awful. So use parchment paper. Lesson in my learned. Opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Lesson learned. Um, oh, the first time that I was working with sourdough starter, I dumped the discard down my drain in the kitchen sink, not thinking I needed to rinse the sink. So that just becomes a rock. Oh, you know, it becomes completely hard, Uh um, in, in the dish disposal. Oh my God. Such a disaster. So rinse, rinse your jars, keep everything wet. And then (laughs) just a month or two ago, I made a chocolate bread and I decided it might be a good idea to paint the outside of the loaf with maple syrup and then sprinkle it with pearl sugar. Right. 
Something I've done a million times. No, not. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this could, this could be a cool, like sugary coat, not thinking that my oven is 500 degrees oh, and yeah. this thing smoked out my whole house. <laughs> oh, it no. was so bad. I mean, my alarm, the alarms are going off. I stained my pan, my baking oh, pan. It man. was so bad. And then one more. Cause this happened yesterday. I was <laughs> milling, I was milling some grain. I have a KitchenAid attachment mock mill. You got to like push it in all the way into the motor and then fasten it in place. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I wasn't being mindful and I didn't screw in the screw all the way. And so the whole thing kind of came out. So mid milling, the whole mill starts spinning with the tray <laughs> of grain the flour just spilled all over my entire kitchen from one wall to the other. My kitchen was covered in wheat berries wow. and flour. You didn't catch that I, on video, did you? I wish that I'd, I wish I had stopped and t- <laughs> taken a picture yeah. of this epic disaster, but <laughs> yeah. that was probably the worst. So yeah, laughing about your mistakes, yeah. framing them in a positive light and everything's a learning experience. Yeah. I think that's so true. I mean, important to keep in mind is like, if you're, gonna be a good sourdough baker or baker in general or cook and you're just gonna be making mistakes forever you know and and learning from them and applying them so um yeah i think i think you know thinking about my own mistakes usually they had to do with early on you know getting those first pancakes and and, you know and just like what's going on i think that all those failures really made me hone in on the importance of starter health and maintenance and just making sure just before I even do anything that my starter is like rising and falling and it has those clear indicators of, of health. So I think Definitely. those those are my earlier failures in the, in the lessons I learned. Um, and we could talk about starters, starter health a little bit more in the episode, but um, before we get to kind of the special topic of the episode, one more question. Well, this has to do with it too. Is you know from Bliss Bread and Bakers? Yes, how you came up with your tried and true method or, or methods? How did you kind yeah, of develop so those initial processes? Reading, 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 watching mm-hmm. videos on YouTube, and then um, maybe asking, finding a group of people. Like like I, I learned a lot from a from a few Facebook groups. One of them is called baking bread with friends. Okay. Another one is perfect sourdough. There was another one early, early on called bread baking, bouncing ideas off of these people because they have more experience than you more than likely. And they, are, they have, they have wisdom, you know, they've been doing mm-hmm. this a long time. Mm-hmm. And so finding somebody who will, who will respond to you and, you know, answer your questions, but then it really is just trying it out. Again mm-hmm. and again and again and just you know like we're talking about you fail you think to yourself let's change something about what I'm doing try to fix this and try it again yeah um, so for me I I started off with there was this there was this YouTube video I I can't even find it these days I tried to fi- I tried to find it again recently ten years old video and really really fun guy and he he's telling you how to make sourdough bread put it in your mixer put on the dough hook so i tried this you know and and it worked pretty well and so i had sort of like a basic idea of what i was after you know you got to soak your flour you got to strength build at some mm. point you have to um allow the dough to rise you have to proof it and bake it in a certain manner and you get this end result 
um, Trevor Wilson is, a, I think I've already mentioned, he had this um, unreal mesmerizing dough handling technique where it's just the most gentle yeah. holding, mm-hmm. beautiful method. Uh, you can just watch, even if you're not a bread baker, it's so fun to just watch him handle that dough. Um, so ha- having that in my repertoire yeah. and then autumn kitchen, um, she was really key, uh, key for me. So she had this like early light fold, uh, portion of her method that I thought was nice. It was a, it's a way to reconnect with your dough mm. and give it a little bit of a structure before moving on to this step called lamination folding, which, you know, she showed how to like stretch out the dough, um, kickstart more strengthen strengthening early in the process. And then, uh, so I incorporating those into my method, I, I use that a lot. And then lots of t- tips and tricks from like the perfect loaf, the fresh fo- loaf forum online. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, just like playing with it and, and adapting it. You can't use somebody else. You can't use somebody else's method from beginning to end. It's just not possible. You're, you have your own little micro environment in yeah. your home, in your kitchen. You're working with a different starter, different flour, different water. So just have slightly varying things over time and, and sort of optimizing it as you go and, and coming up with a method that works for you. That's mm-hmm. your method now, you know, yeah, yeah. no one else is going to be exactly like you. And it shouldn't be. Yeah, you're right. There's just so many variables and, and there's just, you can't apply anything, you know, co- copy paste method to your, you know, specific environment. And, and so uh, you're so right. And, and it, well, anyway, so I, I, the majority of the rest of the episode, I think we have a really fun concept here. It's something I haven't done on other episodes, but I think uh, for you, Kristen, I think it works so great for your audience. And, and, and my audience has been begging me for more of like a, a question and answer type of uh, how-to episode. And so this won't be like, you know, an eight-hour episode because that's we could, we could spend that much time uh, dissecting one of your recipes. Um, but we won't. Um, but I wanted to – so what we're going to do is basically I'm going to have Kristen – uh, kind of walk us through her YouTube video called How to Make a Basic Open Crumb Sourdough Bread. It's about 20 minutes long. I'll, I'll add a, a link at the in my show notes and on my website. Um, and it's, it's got over a million views. So um, I think it's easy to say that this is um, your most popular video and, and recipe that you've shared. And so what I'd like to do is have Kristen kind of walk us through kind of like a 30,000 foot view of this uh, episode. And then I'm going to be, you know, inserting some of the listener questions I've received this last week into that, um, that process and have Kristen respond to them as we walk through it. And then I think it'd be a lot of fun and helpful, especially for our newer sourdough bakers listening, because I know you know, we've had so many new bakers come into the fold with the COVID and, and those pandemic bakers. And and so I think this would be a great uh, episode for them. And so I'll just say, yeah, I even recommend for, for those of you out there, if you want to, you pause the podcast, go watch this video. It's about 20 minutes long and then come back and listen to the episode and hear Kristen kind of answer your listener questions as we go. So that's the idea We'll see how it goes, um, but I think it'll be a lot of fun and couldn't think of a better uh, guest to to do something like this with. So, um, 
So thank you for for agreeing to that beforehand, Kristen. And um, yes, not a problem. I just quickly <laughs> I was I have a piece of paper here, and I just like jotted down what I remember of that of that particular flowchart. So you yeah, know, um, interrupt me if I if I fall off the the program here, but. Yeah. Well, before we get to the, to the flow chart, you know, it, it's kind of, it, it starts with auto light, auto lease and mixing and goes through the, in, all the way through to the bake, the final bake. But I think there's a couple questions that I think we could uh, talk about the, before we get into that process, even um, kind of like the, I'm talking about your, your flow chart here, by the way, it's, it's in the video. So, yes, I think, I think we can do this kind of together because I can, I can touch on these questions. I have them here in front of me Yeah. because they're excellent questions. You managed to get excellent questions and these all go so well with, with the flow chart, at least at the very beginning. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, well, well, I think, you know, so you start with the video starts with auto lice, but, or the auto lease in, in mixing, but uh, we had a few questions talking even before we get into that, you know, people are asking questions about the type of flour and, and, and kind of starter maintenance, you know, and it, like I've yeah. said, one of my biggest lessons was even before I Stephen should have attempted bread, I should have had a healthy starter to get, you know, or you just, yes. you're, you're going to fail right out the gate. And so one of the questions was from Ryo Bakes and he asks, uh, should I stick with one brand and type of flour to feed my starter and, and also water. How does water affect that um, process with, with your starter? This is such a good question. Um, So before I answer anything, I just want a disclaimer here, which (laughs) is that, um, and and Trevor Wilson put the same sort of disclaimer in his, in his ebook, Open Crumb Mastery, which is, what I'm about to tell you and say is, is my opinion. And it's also based on my, my environment. And, mm. and, you know, here in Chicago, it's going to be a lot different than in tropical areas. And one of the things I like to do as a baker, as a science baker is to sort of try to mimic other people's environments and, and sort of copy that in my own space. And it's, it's not easy to do, but I try my best and then I can sort of sort out like, what would it be like if I moved, you know, to a tropical area? Like, how would I change my method based on that, on those conditions? So it's good for me to learn. And then it's good for me to try to help people. But um, I was never classically trained in baking. I, everything that I do and and understand is based on what I've read. And then what I've personally experimented with in my own kitchen. But that's my disclaimer. And there's also so many different ways to make bread. I also want to say that too. This is my favorite way, but it's going to change, you know, Whatever works best for you. Yeah. Okay. So if you if you bake a pancake, you cannot come back and sue Kristen. She is no, added this disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> not yes, responsible. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So um, flour. Yeah. So I I like to keep my own starter fed regularly with the same flour mix forever and ever. Um, mm-hmm. That's not to say if I want to, so I usually feed my, my starter with a mix of bread flour and rye. Okay. Bread flour for strength, um, allowing that that started to trap air and gases produced during the yeast ferment. And then, um, strength. So this thing's allowed to rise really high. And then the rye flour to give it more enzymatic activity, uh, to give it more, a boost in fermentation, Mm -hmm. uh, 
But I've also fed my starter on lots of other types of flour on the side. So this means taking a bit of my regular starter, putting it in a second jar, and then starting to feed it with this other flour mix, 100% wheat, 100% rye, 100% einkorn, whatever it might be. I will say, though, when you switch the flour on your starter, it can take a while for the starter to get used Mm. to the new nutrient profile the new consistency of that dough, that doughy product, et cetera. So, okay. So I always give it, you know, don't think, you know, you can take your starter and start feeding it on a new flour and it's going to be like overnight, a brand new awesome starter. I think it needs time to mm-hmm. adjust time to rebalance and get used to that, that new feed, mm-hmm. especially when you go from like a white, uh, like a whole grain starter to one that has more white flour in it because you're stripping out those nutrients. I think over time, you know, you can feed with all purpose. You can feed with whatever you want. Um, It will eventually adjust. It Mm -hmm. just may take more or less time to to do so. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, it's just like a new diet and for a human, you know, like your stomach might not like something and you got to give it time to adjust. And okay. Um, Now someone is having problems with their starter. Um, Lcraft 077 asked about, she's getting like a clear liquid on top and it won't rise. What, you know, there's a million things that could be going wrong there, but yeah. like what, what did you generally say about people having problems at this point with their starter? Yeah. So this is common that, that liquid, that clear liquid is, is actually alcohol and it has a name. It's so common. It has a name. It's called the hooch. Mm-hmm. And, it's a sign usually that your starter is being underfed. You've, it's hungry. You know, you got to feed it. And like I was saying earlier, when I first started, I didn't, I didn't know to control for temperature. I didn't know that there were, there was anything beyond feeding your starter about equal parts starter with flour and water, one mm-hmm. to one to one ratio mm-hmm. feeds. I didn't even know. So I think when you start to really dive in deep, you start noticing like, oh, maybe I should be feeding this more than once a day you know, morning mm-hmm. and night, mm-hmm. or maybe if I feed a little bit more and dilute my starter, a small amount of starter with more flour and water, this can, you know, give it a little bit more of that, of, of that food that it needs to, to ferment and, and get it to peak farther out. Like it, mm-hmm. it gives it more, more food source so it can get to a, a longer out duration between yeah. feeds. Okay. Um, and then as far as the specific type of flour, you know, I had one question from I bent G. I don't know if that's how he pronounces it, but yes, you know, we, I think in us, King Arthur is a very popular brand. That's what I use. It's really readily accessible in the uh, supermarkets. If you can't, I mean, obviously you could use other types of flour and he's in the e- EU and he can't get that. He says, uh, what do you recommend for flour? So um, in general, in, so in for the starter, you can use anything. I swear I've seen people feed with like cocoa powder. Like you can feed with anything. Um, for the bread, I love using all sorts of different flour. It's just, you can use pretty much any flour. It's just going to change the way that you hydrate the dough, how you handle the dough, um, how long it takes to ferment. So when you switch the flour, you're just going to have a different, a slightly tweaked method usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can do it with any of these flowers. What I would recommend though, when you're getting started is to try to find the highest quality bread flour that you can get your hands on. 
And usually I would say, uh, you know, a flour made with uh, hard red spring wheat is the way to go. That's, okay. They usually call these bread flours. So if you can find something in your country, in your city, that's, that's milled from these wheat berries, hard red spring wheat or hard white spring wheat is also really nice. This will give you, it will make your life a little more easy moving forward. Okay. And, and do you recommend them just using the same flour for the, the starter as they would for the final loaf? So that's actually, that's a really good question. Um, unless I am doing like a hundred percent whole wheat or a hundred percent einkorn bread, and in, in, in that case, I would switch my starter over to the other flour. Okay. Um, I always just use my same starter. I don't change, like my Levan is actually built in the same jar as my perpetuated starter. So okay. in the morning I build my Levan and I have a little leftover to propagate the starter. Okay. Um, okay. So literally just the same thing. And actually this is part of the reason I use the mix that I do. Just a little touch of, of rye and mostly bread flour. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I, we'll talk a little bit more about this at the end of the episode, but you've got a really great, cool little setup with your new jars, you know, and, and I think that's part of, you know, with learning your starter is like seeing how it grows, how it adapts, temperature is so important, and just getting into a rhythm of seeing that, that rise and fall and knowing that how it reacts to different uh, environments, how it reacts to the water, uh, temperature, and uh, you have... Can I throw in really quick there? One really cool thing you can do with any jar, doesn't even have to have all the bells and whistles, is uh, try to get a time lapse of your starter's mm. rise. Okay. So, and even if you could do it, do a, two different ratios in two different jars side by side, you know, put a clock back there. And, and this gives you so much information. And it's one time lapse, you know, over a 12 hour period. Cause you can really see like, how fast does it take for the starter to double, triple, mm. peak, whatever it is? How long does it hold peak? When does it start to fall? And gives you just a wealth of information about how your starter, how starter's activity is. Yeah. I mean, because your starter, I mean, if you think about it, it's really your partner in this process. And the better you know that. your partner, you know, for the baking process, the better you're going to be able to work together and and come together and work towards a common goal <laughs> you know and so I love that and so but anyway your 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 starter jar that the starter jar that you've you've put together here i think is really cool and cuz it has the coolest thing i've ever seen it's got this little temperature thermometer on the side so you know exactly how hot it is because as we all know, our kitchen could be a totally different temperature from the rest of our house. Yes. You've got a little rubber band that comes with it and all these, you know, uh, millimeter, centimeter marks on the side. So you can really be very specific and, and scientific about it. And, yeah. And, and, and if, your starters, if your starter is rising 3.2x one day and the next day, but the next day, it, you know, drops down to 2.5x, it, it's it's sort of a quantitative way to, to measure your your starter activity and it can sort of tell you like, Oh, I wonder what, what might have happened. Why is it, you know, being a little sluggish today, yeah. you know, but putting a number to it. Yeah. So that, that's a great tool. So, um, well, let's just jump into it. We're, we're getting into the <laughs> podcast here and, uh, we are kind of still on the, the front end of it, but, um, so moving into the time timeline of your, of your, of this video and kind of your, your flow chart, 
to Acre Bread asks a good question, and this will kind of lead us right into it. Is is what's your basic timeline for your your this recipe? Yeah, so great question. Overview: You're going to do optimize your starter first and foremost, right? You got to get a good Levon going. So I usually do that in the morning. Uh, first thing in the morning, I wake up, I, I mix together some starter flour water, build my Levon. Uh, somewhere a couple hours after that, I usually build my auto lease. So this is a mixture of just flour and water that's going into the recipe. So whatever mix of whole grain white flour that I want with a particular hydration. Mix it together, cover it, let it sit somewhere at room temperature. Um, during that time that it's pre-soaking, you're kickstarting gluten, gluten formation here. And the Levon is continuing to build. So by the time the Levon hits peak, that's when I usually have it ready, dump it in there with the, with the dough, uh, mix it together by hand. I, I, I really recommend hand mixing for mm-hmm. gentle manipulation. Uh, let it sit for a little while, 20, 30 minutes, add in the salt, same deal, hand mixing, super gentle, just enough to like get it in there. And then the remainder of, and th- by the way, the addition of the, of the Levon is really the, the start of the fermentation of your recipe. So okay. I always make a mental note, write down when that was. So when, do it, when did I add the Levon? Then the rest of the time is really paying attention to the temperature, paying attention to how the dough is developing. You boost strength in the dough um, by, by manipulating it, by doing lamination folding or coil folding, stretch and folds. So all of these happen during that bulk fermentation stage. And then at the end of the bulk, and we'll talk more about that later, you shape your dough. Um, you put it into some sort of bowl or banneton. Uh, you let it, you cover it up. I like to put my dough in the refrigerator Mm-hmm. So it just sits for the rest of the night. And in the morning, I preheat my oven while the dough is still in the fridge. And uh, when it's the oven has been preheating for about an hour, I pull the dough out, flip it out of the container, score it on the top of the razor blade, pop it in my baking vessel and and bake. Okay. So it's kind of a morning to morning, 12-hour yeah. method. Got it. Okay. 12 hours. Two days or, you know, it, it spreads over. Yeah, I, it's similar. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of, you know, I do all my prep on like a Tuesday night, pre-weigh everything, feed my leaven. Oh, organized. I do it all over. You know, on w- the next day, you know, I'm, I'm mixing and folding and shaping, putting the refrigerator. And so on the third day, Thursday is when I bake. So it's, Oh, nice. Okay. Know, so, yeah. I, uh, it, you, it sort of, it, it, you work it to make it fit your own work schedule and routine. Mm, so mm-hmm. there are so many other methods that I've tried. This is my favorite though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So co- re- reversing and, and starting over, let's, let's kind of look at each step and I'll throw in some listener questions in, in, in some of my own takeaways from watching the video and things that I learned as well. So um, back, you know, back at the auto lease, uh, step, I, you know, I immediately realized that you were looking for something different than, than maybe I would have looked at at that point. Um, auto lease, again, is just kind of a fancy word for pre-soaking the flour and with the water. And I saw, you, first of all, you did a three-hour auto, auto lease, which you know, maybe I'll do like an hour, a half hour to an hour sometimes. Mm-hmm. I haven't been that precise with it. <laughs> I, I'll admit that. But you were, so you, you were looking for a window pane, at this point, whereas I've kind of, whenever I've used that method or technique, 
um, or tool to kind of gauge the development of my dough. That's usually been like later in like the bulk ferment. And so I thought that was really interesting that already at that point in the process, at the very beginning, really, you're you're kind of able to get this window pane. So I was just It's a miracle, isn't it? Yeah. Like seeing the dough, I it always blows my mind when I first mix that dough. It's like a thick pancake batter. And if you pull on it, it just sort of like tears apart. But that amazing, you know, gluten formation, just letting it sit. You're not doing anything. You yeah. just let it sit for a few hours. It's and it beautiful. Makes, yeah. It's beautiful, silky, smooth dough. <laughs> so, yeah, d- you know, different flowers handle autolise and the stress of autolise differently. So you're using King Arthur bread flour as your base flour. That's what I use too. And for that, for that flour, I have seen it can go six or m- even more hours at room temperature, just mm. sitting in a bowl with water. Bakers have even shown like you can do this overnight. So you can put it in your refrigerator, let it sit. This is a really high quality protein flour. Um, I want to also mention right away, when people talk about protein in their flour, you know, there's high protein. Like you look on the bag, oh, the percent number is very high, but it doesn't tell you the quality of said mm, protein. Mm, mm-hmm. So I have, a, I have a very high protein flour. It's an ancient grain called einkorn. It's 13% protein. On the bag, it's higher in protein than King Arthur bread flour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it handles an autolyse poorly. Because the quality of that protein, of that gluten that forms is very, very low. Okay. Low, low quality. So because of this weak gluten, you have to tweak the method, potentially even get rid of the autolyse altogether. Mm. Okay. So in, in general, though, I like a dough. I mean, you've seen my, my videos. Yeah. Very high hydration. So <laughs> I like to put, I really like to pack it with water as much as it can handle. So I know King Arthur bread flour doughs can handle lots and lots of water mm. and it will eventually turn around and go from being this slappy watery mix to a very well-developed dough. Okay. But if I have a dough with the, a wet dough at the beginning and it never over the course of the whole ferment builds strength or elasticity, there's just no getting around it. You're going to have to lower your hydration in the end, like for your next bake. Okay. And then that, in that strength, you're looking for that and you're able to see that with that window pane. So it's kind of funny. I never, ever pull a window pane once I'm past the coil, once I'm in the coil folding portion of the method. So I don't, I don't want to mess with the dough at that point. I really want to admit as little touching as possible is, is my, is my mantra. So in the, in the beginning, I like to see, you know, oh, this looks great. It's, It's very thin window pane, very minimal tearing. But by the end, I'm looking more for like a sheen on the top of the dough. And that sort of gives me, I, I know if I pulled a window pane, I'm sure it would be beautiful. Um, but I don't actually stress the dough at that point because as it ferments, it sort of starts to break down. Mm-hmm. So you end up with, you know, you don't want to put that sort of pretty heavy duty stress on the dough right at the end when the dough is, is already lower integrity than it was at the beginning. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, again, it's like with a starter, you're making sure the starter is healthy before you get started. And then with this window pane test, you're making sure that your gluten development's 
ready to go and informed before you even start the rest of the process. So, so, and yes, I think it's, it's something amazing here in the United States. We don't get on the bag, these little values of like uh, the PL, the W number. These are values that are, are present on bags of flour in other countries like Italy. And they tell you more about that, Mm. the integrity of your protein and how much water it can take, how elastic it is, how Hmm. extensible it's going to be in a dough. So we don't have that here. So I developed um, the flower stress test, which uh, I've been posting about on my Instagram and on YouTube. And it's a way to, you know, you don't have these values, but you can just add water to a small amount of your flour and let it sit for 30 minutes, one hour, two hours, three hours, so on. And, and you sort of stretch it out and you see like, how does this look after Mm. four hours? Mm -hmm. You know, if it's going to break down, you'll see signs of it then. And then you think, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't, you know, do an auto lease at all or, you know, handle this dough a little differently than I would a dough that is like spelt maybe and like spreads out around your entire kitchen island or kitchen, kitchen counter, you know? Uh, So that's a cool way to tell like the integrity of your protein. Well, and I think we've answered the question we got from Beauty and Sparkle. She asks about, you know, how do you know when you've developed the gluten enough during mixing, you know, to maybe just start the process? Obviously, the, the window pane is one of those kind of indicators. Would For you sure. add anything else to? I would just say when you mix that auto lease, early on, I thought it was important to not over mix. I had this in my head. I don't know why, where it came from. But actually, if you don't fully mix, you're going to have these little clumps of like dry flour in there. And that is not good for all subsequent steps down the Mm -hmm. road. And it's not good for your resulting crumb. So the only thing I would say is right when you add the water to the flour, close your eyes, get your hand wet and reach in the dough and really feel your dough, slide it through your fingers and see like, is this thing fully mixed? Is it Mm -hmm. homogenous? And I do the same thing after adding the Levan, after adding the salt so I'm really feeling the dough, making sure it's more or less homogenous. Okay, that's good. That's good. Moving forward to the next step, you know, adding the Levon, Levin, Levon, however you want to pronounce it. I Levin. probably say something different <laughs> every time. But um, I say, I've I've changed how I say this over the years. <laughs> yeah, Levon is how I say it now. I think. <laughs> yeah, Levon. Um, I guess, you know, at this point, it's, you know, two minutes, 11 seconds into the video, but I I was just blown away by how delicate you are with your mixing process. It's kind of silly, but it's almost as if you're like treating it like this little delicate newborn puppy the whole time. And again, it reminded me of, you know, you talked about Trevor J. Wilson, his method, and, you know, you're not slapping and folding. You're not really doing these aggressive stretches. You're not kneading it. Um, why do you, why would you say what's important about that? Why is that something you have? Yes. I love this. I love this question. So, (laughs) so Trevor Wilson specifically says it's the golden rule to treat the dough as you would like to be treated yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard that. Be nice to the dough and the dough will be nice to you in return. (laughs) Um, so what I found is that the aggressive, slap and fold. And I know that there's people who love this. Mm-hmm. I am not one of those people, but you know, if, if it's working for you, do it. You know, if you want to take out your aggression on your dough, by all means, you know, that's a, that's a healthy way to do it. But I don't find that it's necessary. Maybe it's because, you know, I, I work with such high hydration. It's just not, an, it does not end up giving me better crumb. Mm. And then it makes a big mess of my kitchen mm-hmm. and it makes me feel 
more stress doing it. So I just don't do it. I find like a well-timed coil fold is going to later in the process is going to do much more for me than mm-hmm. getting dough all over my kitchen through, yeah. through well, something that, like that. And that's that. the beauty of like the auto lease, you know, yeah, is that it does exactly. a lot of the work for you. Absolutely. And also it's like, it's so nice and fun and, and calming to, to mm. treat the dough that way. You know, you're sort of tune out everything else and you focus for that one minute it takes to do a uh, hand mixing or, or the coil folds. You know, you're, you're just, I don't know. There's something about it that's really like pleasant mm-hmm. and, and yeah. calming. You really have to see her do it in the video. And it's just, just this most delicate, you're not even squeezing or you're just kind of like pushing it under itself at all points of the mix. So uh, it's kind of mesmerizing, but I'm going to move on to the adding the salt uh, Mm -hmm. portion. Again, just like I said already, you know, it's a very delicate process. When I do it, it's usually like this, I'm squeezing every, you know, all of the dough. I'm kind of trying to squeeze the salt in there. Whereas you have, so the salt is different. So you do the Levan and everything's really nice and smooth. You're adding liquidy dough to liquidy dough. But when you get to the salt, you're right. It does actually take a little bit more manipulation to get the salt in there. So the, the salt adds flavor. It slows down your ferments. It strengthens the gluten. So you put it in, you can immediately in your hands, feel mm. the dough firm mm-hmm. up. Like yeah. it, it knows like, oh my God, that's the salt. So it does require a little bit more manipulations, but still, you know, I don't want to go out of my way to, to go crazy with it. I do the squeeze. I squeeze it sometimes. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it will come back, you know, if, if it's sort of broken down at the end of your mixing, it will, it will come yeah. back together in the end. Well, anyway, I just really, you know, again, much gentler than my typical approach. And I thought that was, but yeah, no, I agree. Like when I, that was kind of, as I was learning the process, I could, that was one of the first things I noticed about uh, sourdough baking was how the salt changes the whole equation. You got this like sloppy, wet mix. Uh And then all of a sudden it's got this body and texture and and pull to it. So Yeah. yeah, sea salt. Uh, moving on, we're you know we're doing some, you know you're doing your light fold, about five minutes into the video. So light fold lamination. So these are like I said before, it's a way to come back to your dough to assess how is the dough coming together. You know, do I need to add a little more water next time I do this? Do I need to add less water? It's a way to sort of manipulate the dough, add a little bit more tension, give it a little bit more strength building. Um, early on in the process and then let it rest again. So it's, that's why I usually leave this gap between the Levan and the salt, right? So this was, I thought this was really important too. I don't add the salt and the Levan at the same time mm-hmm. because it's just, it allows me one more opportunity to connect with the dough, one more opportunity to manipulate it, to strengthen it. Mm-hmm. So that's these four like Levan, salt, light fold lamination. These are all more and more strength building, more and more getting in touch with the dough. How is it developing in that first couple hours? Mm-hmm. And just for our listeners, there's a really good breakdown of this below the video of each step with its time stamp um, next to it. So um, lamination, six minutes, 40 seconds into the video. Historically, I've, this is not something that I've done unless I'm doing like a small batch of, of bread and I'm trying to add in stuff. I'll add in stuff with like a lamination. Yeah. But it's something that you do. And I think it's, it's such a cool process and it's, you know, uh, 
it's a beautiful thing to watch you do, but I'm, I'm curious, like, what would you say is, you know, the biggest advantage to this method? And it's, it's something you do for all your breads. It's a great question. So back when I first published that tutorial, I was doing it 100% of the time. So all of my bakes, I would, I would include mm. this step. So just as a little like uh, sidebar, um, juicy uh, from Autumn Kitchen, I learned this technique from her. This is not my technique. This is something I had seen her do. And in addition, Seor Bread, mm-hmm. uh, Guy Frankel, who I'm sure everyone is familiar with, he also showed this method as well. So anyway, I, I don't do this all the time these days. I do it exactly as you're saying. If I have two colors, say I divided the dough after adding the salt and I added, I don't know, some sort of vegetable puree to one Mm -hmm. of the two doughs and I now need to bring them back together. This is a really good step to layer them on top, stretch it out, fold it up together, Uh, adding sprinkleable ingredients like seeds, chocolates, Mm -hmm. things like that. This is a great opportunity. You get a nice even distribution of these inclusions. So that's, that's, when I tend to use it nowadays. And in fact, I, I definitely don't do it all the time, especially when working with uh, maybe like more high whole grain, fresh milled grain breads. Mm-hmm. I don't want to stress the dough. It's not, it's, it's kind of stressful on the dough. You know, mm-hmm. you're pulling it like a pizza dough out, mm-hmm. out on mm-hmm. your counter and it's gonna, it's that that's going to harm the gluten for some doughs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, some people just hate that technique because <laughs> it tears it's, you know, uh, getting stuck to your counter. You don't have enough room to do it. Don't do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's the easiest step to skip over. Okay. And just okay. Put, put a coil fold in its place. You okay. Know? An extra coil fold maybe. Okay. But you know, it is, it is helpful to like, kind of, again, as you're learning, seeing how extendable your dough is, how the gluten's developed. Uh, it's definitely helpful for like adding, uh, add-ins and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I going to say here? Well, let's move on. Let's see. I had a, we had a question. Well, and that, and that answers the question from uh, Lavoie Dupain. I'm going to massacre that. Uh, but uh, she, she asked um, about your use of lamination and, and how it increases strength. And, and is that, would that be one of the reasons why you would do a lamination to increase strength? That is, so I, I've told people before, I think it, it acts like one and a half coil folds mm. for strength building early on. And just like when you are adding, when, so true lamination is, you know, for pastry, for croissants, you know, layering butter and, mm-hmm. and, and dough. And it, it gives the dough structure. Like you have these like layers of, you know, dough and, and gases and all this. Uh, and so, I, yeah, it does increase strength for sure. But I think a properly timed coil folds is going to give you a similar result. Okay. And it's not really, um, you can't really use it if you've got a lot of dough, right? So like I bake one loaf a day, maybe two, and I'll do it for that. But if I start getting to like my my hands-on workshops and making 22 doughs in a day, I'm not going to be doing Mm -hmm. lamination for all those doughs, you know, just stick to your coils. Great. Okay. Um, so moving to kind of the next phase would be your, the stretch and folds, you know, it starts about eight minutes, 20 seconds. You do three, uh, repetitions of the stretch and fold, um, and do what you, you know, I think the next question has to do with bulk ferment, but did you want to add anything to like the stretch and fold technique? So it's funny. 
Um, I certainly want to talk about the coil folds. So first of all, they're definitely coil folds as featured in the video. Um, I messed up and typed in stretch and fold. So stretch and fold is a method where you grab the dough and you lift it over and, you know, across the dough, stretching uh, it to the other yeah, side, okay. and then you rotate your bowl and you do that four times. I actually don't like stretch and folds as much as I like coil folds. I like the little package of perfectly organized symmetrical square dough that you get when you do coil folds. Mm -hmm. I also find that it's a more even stretch across the dough. So stretch and folds, you're just kind of, you're stretching this one little region of the dough, but a coil fold, you mm. get like a full stretch down the whole axis mm -hmm. of the dough, you know, okay. top, bottom, side, side. Um, number of folds. I, this is, I think, possibly after, you know, getting an optimized starter and understanding fermentation, I think understanding the point of a good coil fold is, is really key. So, uh, yeah, Alex asked this question average time. So, if you, I, I don't even these days write when or when I'm doing a coil fold or how many coil folds I'm doing, because it seriously depends mm. on your dough. So if you had, if you have one brand of, of flour and I have another, and we're both using the same hydration, it may take me four coil folds to get strength. It may take you two coil folds to mm. get the same mm -hmm. strength. So looking at your dough, you know, once it's loose and slack, it looks like it could use a little pick me up. That's when you connect with the dough mm, again, mm -hmm. give it that, that strength exercise and just watch the dough. Don't look at the time. Don't set timers. This is a time for you to be focused on what does the dough look like? How can I, how can I keep it, you know, strong, have tension, have this like nice curvature to the top. Yeah, no, I, I, you're right. It's, it's such a, again, each one of these phases is, you know, you've got to learn what you're trying to look for in each phase. And, and it's taken me years and years and years to figure this out, but stretch and folds, you know, as I've, I just transitioned to a electric mixer. Um, cause I'm Ooh. doing like 40 plus loaves these days for my cottage bakery. Wow. And, and that is the one way that's kind of pulled me back into like knowing my dough It's like, okay, it's really slack here. Traditionally I would have done, like a Maurizio recipe has like six folds in it, you know, or, yeah. you know, 15 minutes every 15 minutes. And then you go into half hour increments that doesn't really work uh, with, with this type of setup. And so these, the coil folds is something you could do for the big, larger amounts of dough still. Um, and like you said, the, the stretch and folds, it's, you're not going to be able to, to mm, exercise all of that gluten as you yeah, would with like I a coil. Fold. Yeah, exactly. And I would say like, you know, during these coil folds, during this time, your dough is starting to rise, right? So you have, the dough is getting puffy. And I think to, to finish answering Alex's question, how much time between the last coil and the shaping, this is really, this is the question I think that even as like an advanced level baker, you still kind of struggle mm. with this mm -hmm. one because every bake can be different. Your humidity could be different. Your temperature could be different. So your dough might be more or less slack. So for me, what I'm looking for is that the dough is, you know, you do that, la you do a coil, say you have two hours before the end of your bulk ferment and you do a coil fold uh, two hours prior, you're going to watch your dough. If it relaxes readily, quickly, you, you probably need to do another coil somewhat closer to that final shaping part of the process mm -hmm. to give it that pre-shape, that final like uh, add-in of strength. 
But mm-hmm. if your dough is holding its shape quite well, you really want to give it time to relax. Like mm-hmm. you don't want to touch it right after you've done a coil fold because it'll be too tight. It's not going to want you to touch it. It's not going to yeah. want, it's going to resist your manipulations. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. It's just, it, it's going to be dependent on so many factors in your unique kitchen, but using those folds is, is a way to like add in that strength or, you know, or leave it alone and let it relax a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, it was uh, blood at blood's bakery. You said Alex is his, his name. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. So I think that question, you know, what's your average time between the last coil fold and shaping, I would call that period, the bulk fermentation. Um, and so, and that's really the, one of the hardest things I think, and I'm still learning it is, is, how do you know when the bulk fermentation is done? What to look for? But that's like you said, it's that's like it? the that's the ultimate question. And yeah. it depends too on you know how are you gonna proof? Because if you're mm. gonna proof in a warm spot uh overnight, you know your dough is gonna continue to rise. So if mm. you're at 45 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit overnight in your fridge, you you can't bulk to the same degree as someone who's got a 38 degree, 35 degree fridge. Mm. So mm-hmm. you, knowing, having some foresight, like what is going to happen to this dough after I shape it? So if you have a super cold fridge, like I do, I usually let that bulk ferment stage go as long as possible. I really let that dough rise, especially if I'm working with that really high quality flour, 60% rise. And, you know, is, is probably an average number. So I'll, okay. I really let my dough get puffy, yeah. really puffy. And then I'll shape it and then I'll get it into the fridge. Um, whereby it stops rising completely because mm-hmm. the yeast just cannot function at that, at that sort of temperature. The dough actually shrinks, by the way. It shrinks because the gases in there, they're constricting. because In the, the refrigerator. Yeah. Like if you ever okay. put a balloon in the freezer, it like shrinks. So <laughs> this is like what happens to my dough. Yeah. No, I'm, su- I'm sucking all this up. Sorry. I'm like absorbing all this information. One thing that I, would, that I could recommend is the use of an aliquot jar. Mm. The aliquot jar is a way to help you take, you take the the overall idea. So you take a little chunkier dough before your dough starts actually rising. You take it, you slip it in a little glass jar, like a spice jar, straight sides, glass jar. You mark a rubber band around where the height of that little aliquot is in the jar. And then you put that jar next to your main dough and you can sort of see like, oh, my dough is rising at approximately this rate. Mm. You let that dough in the jar rise to a certain degree say it's doubled in the little aliquot jar, you go ahead, you shape your dough, put it in the fridge, bake it off, see what it looks like. It Mm. was this dough over fermented. Okay. Next time I make the same dough, I'm not going to allow the aliquot to go hundred percent rise. I'm going to cut it back to like 80% rise and we'll try again. So using an aliquot over multiple bakes, Mm. um, this is one way to kind of narrow in on what is that appropriate yeah. amount of rise for, for this recipe. And by the way, it differs between, <laughs> there's so many things that yeah, affect yeah, yeah. the rate of bulk fermentation, how far you should push it, you know, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, I, I, I learned a lot. I remember trying that process out because again, bulk ferment is like, for me, the trickiest part to really uh, nail down and, and figure out with consistency. Um, but yeah, no, so I really recommend people checking out that process, the aliquot jar process. And you got a lot of, a few videos about it. I talk more about that in my hundred percent whole wheat video, but what I'd like to do is just have a YouTube tutorial just on the aliquot jar that I should probably do that. 
Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great way just, even if you have an idea, a good idea of what you're doing, just to kind of gauge like, oh, okay, this is, you know, my, my bulk ferment, I'm getting about a 40% rise. Even if you know, even if you've got it down, you're not even wanting to tweak it. It's just good information to have, you know? Yeah. I will say the one thing that I've noticed is because you're, you're coil folding your main dough, the big glob of dough in your dish, the, the aliquot actually rises uh, higher. So mm. when your main dough, cause you're degassing your dough every time you touch it just a little, but mm-hmm. it, and you're strengthening it, the dough in the aliquot jar is not being touched. So for me, what I've noticed is that when the aliquot about doubles, my main dough has risen to about that 60% rise. If that, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So just, it's, it's better to follow it over the course of several bakes. And, yeah. and use the aliquot to gauge what you're going to do the next bake. Yeah. It's just, it's just a really good reference tool to yes. learn more about your dough at this really vital stage. So I highly recommend it. Um, so that kind of gets us through the video towards like the, the bulk fermentation and then, you know, final proof about 15 minutes into the video, AMP desserts has a question about how can I tell if the dough is proofed enough? And so this is, um, Let's see. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped shaping. Did you have any notes on shaping? So I, I tend to prefer the batard shape. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of videos out there on that. I can tell you that when I was first starting out, I did a lot of boules. And I always noticed this thing that when you slice the boule, the outside of the loaf seemed to be more open and airy. And then the core of the of the Bool was more tight. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 over a year ago, I ran this side by side and I was like, here's a bull, here's a batard, same dough, both the same, you know, proofed the same. Uh, why is it that like the batard is so even, it's evenly open, whereas the bull is kind of like, it changes, like the outside's different than the center. And someone at the time was like, you know, it's a, it's it has to do with the bake. So when you put this round ball-shaped dough in your oven, at this hot oven, it takes the longest time possible for the heat to penetrate to the core mm. of a bowl. Mm. But the batard, because it's elongated, it has more of like this line of, ce- of center point. So mm-hmm. it's the heat can hit that middle point. And so all of those air pockets can open up more evenly. Mm-hmm. And this really resonated with me. And, and I've tried this again and again, every time I bake a boule, I cannot get it to be as open as I'd like. And it's, I think, cause it's just crusting over too fast in the mm-hmm. oven. Like it gets mm-hmm. hard and then it can't finish its oven spring. Whereas a batard is, you know, I highly recommend a batard. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I, that's my preferred shape as well. And, <laughs> but again, there's more th- more to learn and like the perf what's what's the stitching do you use stitching do you mm. what folding technique do you use there's just so many variables and and it really again it has to do with what your what kind of basket you're using maybe or, or what shape and shape you're looking for more variables but um yeah there's like a million of them yeah there's no easy <laughs> way other than just practice i will know. say it too you know if you've got a very loose extensible dough one that you've coil folded five six times Probably, you know, do that last coil fold really close to the shaping and give it a nice, tight, taut shaping. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a dough that's really strong and holding shape really well, give more time between the last coil fold and that shaping and shape it not so tight. It doesn't need it. You know, mm-hmm. like be gentle with it. If you tighten it too much, 
even with that overnight final proof, that relaxing stage, it's, it's not going to rise like how you want it to, because it's too tight. Got it. Okay. I'm soaking this all up for my next bake here, Kristen. <laughs> um, but okay. So we've, we've shaped it. We've put it into the refrigerator in this case and amp desserts wants to know, how do you know your dough is proofed enough? For me, I'm just kind of looking at, is it kind of the shape of the dough I'm looking for? Is it kind of proofed above the basket? But this is all how I've honed in on like what I'm looking yeah. for. But yeah. what what would you look for at this point for? So again, dough? this this goes back to refrigerator temperature. So I, I, I proof in two, I, I have two sort of similar methods. So one is the one we're talking about where I let the dough fully proof, fully rise, sorry, fully rise to this 60% point. Then I shape it, I put it in a fridge. I get no more rise at that point in my, in my regular refrigerator. Mm-hmm. It's too cold, 38 degrees, no more, no more rise in my dough. So it shrinks if anything. And that's what I look for in the morning. I say, did it shrink a little bit? That's good. That means it had enough gases. So if it's kind of like deflated at the edges, that's a good sign for me. But the other method that I like to use is I cut that bulk ferment short a little bit. So I don't let it go 60% rise. I let it go 40% rise. Mm -hmm. Shape it up, put it in. I'm a nerd. I have an incubator. I have an amphibian egg incubator. So (laughs) I can set that to whatever temperature I want. That one I'll set to 45 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's a little warmer and I get, I absolutely get rise in that overnight Okay. Final proof. So for those doughs, I, I'm exactly what you're describing. Round, full, it rises, you know, depends on how much uh, dough I put into that banneton, but, you know, usually it's a little bit risen over the rim of the, of the basket. But this is something that it's going to depend on your banneton. Mm-hmm. It's going to depend on the dough you make. If you make this, this is always really good to make the same bread over and over and over again. Yeah. And just sort of Really focus on on all the little details, like how high is it rising in that banneton? Is it an inch over? Is it a half an inch over? Which one gave me the better result? And, and exactly. that that can help you. Okay, yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, let's see. So we've we've got it proofed. We've we're throwing it in the oven. We're baking it. You, I, I, I love your, your steam setup. Um, we are, you know, you've got this like thick baking stone. You've got the lava rocks. You had this kind of like a turkey roaster size uh, contraption. It's a whole deal. Yeah, it's the a whole, whole deal. Thing. <laughs> uh, and, and, and the tray kind of just, you got to see it on the video, but, it, it, you know, the steam kind of vents up into the dish and surrounds the bread in steam. Um, is this something you're still doing or is this like, I know that you have uh, a few challenger bread pans in your lineup now. How, how does it, that steam setup um, compare? Yeah. So, all right. That setup was inspired by Teresa Greenway from the perfect sourdough Facebook group. Okay. Um, she didn't use the steam tray, but I was like, can't hurt to have even more steam. Yeah. So <laughs> fitting that in there too. So, I don't use that method anymore. No, I don't. But I love that method. So well, it's great for bakers that don't have a, a, exactly. if they're brand new exactly. and they just want to get steam in there. Exactly. And you can use, you know, those aluminum foil, those disposable turkey roasters that you get at Thanksgiving time. Mm-hmm. So you can use one of those. Just something to trap the steam in a smaller area, right? Uh, if you just 
put the steam in the tray and bake it uncovered, you run into the problem of direct heat from your oven, so from the heating element. And then you also run into the problem that that, that steam is filling out the entirety of your oven. So you get, le- you get less steam per square inch. Um, okay, the Challenger pan, a Dutch oven, these things are absolutely fantastic. I was blown away when I switched over to the Challenger pan. It's a beautiful piece of equipment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, fit, the, fit my batards just right. But what, what interests me is that it's sort of like the pressure of that steam. Yeah. Like you can steam your oven. It's like a nice, gentle steam bath. But mm. then when you put it in a Dutch oven or the Challenger pan, it's like so much steam in such a small area. And it's like sealed, like almost hermetically sealed yeah, around. So yeah. the steam cannot escape. It's wonderful. And then I get this massive, ideal, you know, oven spring. And then the, the crust is different quality, too. Uh, throw in an ice cube in there, you know, mm-hmm. that ice cube will help steam as well. And you get this like beautiful, uh, shiny, blistery crust. Yeah. And it's like crackly. It's so hard to achieve. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have a, a Rothko now because I'm baking mm. more bread, but lucky, I just lucky. have never, ever been able to get the, that blistery sheen that I just, it's so easy to do with something like the Challenger bread pan or, you know, or a Dutch oven, like you're saying, it has to do with more like the pressure of that steam. And then like my Brofco is just like this big box with lots of holes in it. <laughs> so it doesn't really keep it Which one tight. do you have? Uh, the, the, like, the, B, the B40, I think is called. Ooh. Yeah, the three deck. So, but they're not, they don't have the best seal unless you have some sort of like, oh, you know, workaround latch. And even then, yeah, I just, again, like the Dutch oven or a Challenger bread pan, like, and you just get that beautiful bubbly crust. Yeah, but use but use parchment. I mean, use <laughs> don't let your dough stick to the bottom of those pans. Something's got to go between it. Semolina, yes, yes. uh, cornmeal, something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Note taken. Well, Kristen, we are really going over time here. I wasn't quite sure how we would if we would get through all these questions. Real quickly, though, I, I do want to talk about your starter jar kit, which I think would be been really helpful, especially for beginners or really people at any stage, but especially beginners trying to like really hone in on, I think the most important part of the whole process is a healthy starter. Um, it's like, I, like I said, at the beginning of the show, it's got a little thermometer on the side so you can know precisely what range, you know, what temperature your starter is at. It's got incremental. There's actually, markers. there's a lot of information in that little thermometer. Strip. There really I didn't is. realize until later because it tells you, you know, there's different, it's like a color code. So like if it's green, it's your, you've like hit, nailed that temperature exactly. If it's tan, it's your, temp, your real temperature is a little lower. And if, oh, it's, if it's a blue, it's a little above that temperature. It's really interesting how, how precise it is. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I was excited to see that. Yeah. See, it has like the thermometer strip. I love the ruler. So um, this, this guy, Matthew Mento McGregor, he, he's from New York. He messaged me back in the, in the spring and he, he had already had a jar in production. It was uh, similar, sort of like this prototype model. And he, he said that he had used my, um, how to activate and optimize your starter tutorial, mm. sort of come up with the design. Cause he's like, you say, you know, it's important to measure volume rise. It's important to measure temperature. So he's like, I, I put it on the jar I was blown away by the idea. You know, I, I really was fascinated with him and, and his work. And I was like, yeah, let's, 
let's collaborate and let's like make this jar a little bit more the dimensions that I, yeah. that I would think to be more ideal for like uh, micro feeding, which is what I do, which is very, very small quantity feeds, mm-hmm. five grams of starter, 10 grams of water, 10 grams of, of flour. So something that you could still see the rise on these small volumes of feeds, mm-hmm. um, something that would be accurate, something that, you know, people could, could look at it day to day and know, like you're saying, the temperature and a little area to write notes. It has information on the jar about ratios and, you know, how much to, to get to this 40, approximately 45 grams total volume of starter for the jar. Mm. Like here's what you could maybe add. And then I put together a tutorial on how to use the jar and, and the kit. We, we got do offer this whole kit as well. I'm really excited about it. We had, yeah. we put it out right before Christmas, which is maybe not the best idea. We had this overwhelming uh, mm. interest in the awesome. product and sold a bunch of them. And uh, we, we ended up having to shut down the store yeah. um, <laughs> right before Christmas, right? So we had a little bit of, of limited supply left, um, which we sort of, sort of sold off as special orders. And now we're in we're manufacturing more jars. The next round is going to be a little bit of an upgrade. We're going with a different glass oh, uh, cool. that's a little more clear, and uh, it's it's I think it's more beautiful mm. overall. Like mm-hmm. it's made by like a scientific equipment company. They make beakers and stuff. So. Nice. But I'm really excited. Those should yeah. be here in mid to late March. Yeah. So we'll be able to. Well, I wish I had one years ago when I was trying to figure this whole thing out because it <laughs> <Me> really, <too. laughs> it's really helpful in the sense that it really gets you familiar with your starter and what your starter likes, you know, yep. and, and it gives you multiple ways to, to gauge and measure that uh, growth and activity. Uh, so you can yeah. really hone that in and, and, set yourself up for success for the remainder of the baking process. So I also, I really wanted it to be a pair of jars because a lot of people do, well, not a lot of people. Some people like to do side-by-side comparisons. So different, mm-hmm. maybe one flower in here, one flower in here. Let's see how that affects, you know, side-by-side. Like, let's see what this does to the, to the starter activity. So yeah. if you want to play scientist, yeah, use, yeah, you can use both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, where can people find these jars, Kristen, and how can people uh, connect with you and, and follow along in your uh, sourdough journey and, and, and gain all this wisdom that you've put out there? So the, the only way to get them now is through my Shopify store. Uh, there's a link available on my Instagram page at the top of the page. Uh, I am always telling people, check the link in my bio so this is a little link that's in the biography portion at the very top of a person's Instagram page. So I've provided um, this this really awesome site called Search My Social, which is mm-hmm. they, they allow you to put sort of like your link tree list of links. But then at the top, they give you a search search bar. So nice, a person yeah. can go to your page and type in a term, bulk fermentation or whatever it might be. Uh, matcha powder, you know, purple sweet potato. You can type in a term there and then it brings up all of that person's posts on that topic. Hopefully that can be helpful as like yeah, a resource no, to people. I, I've, I've checked it out and there's a ton of information and it's really easy to use. So thank you. I and then highly recommend my, it. My YouTube channel. Um, I know I need to be posting there more often. I'd love to do that. It's just a lot of work since I do it all by myself mm-hmm. in my using my phone. So it's sort of sort of difficult, but well, they're uh, really I high quality. I, I'm so shocked you. that you that you only use your phone for those, but they're, they're great tutorials. 
Yeah. So. so everything's there in the, in the link in my bio, mostly I try to make it all organized as best as I can. And anytime I put up an educational post, I try to link to it there. Okay. Well, perfect. Well, Kristen, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I feel like I've learned a ton. I'm going to re <laughs> replay this episode and, and break out my notes and start, you know, adding <laughs> stuff and Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, it was a blast. And I can't wait to share it with our audience. I think they're going to love it. So thank you so much, Kristen. Have a great day. And I hope we can uh, meet in person soon. You know, it wouldn't be... uh, I'd be so excited if we could someday uh, hang out at uh, Jim Challenger's house and uh, bake some bread. I was so jealous when I saw you doing a... uh, tutorial there workshops he is the best guy he's so sweet he's so encouraging um yeah he's he's one of those accounts that like he's so open to share and just tell everyone what his journey's been like and i love knowing him i love being able to go to his place that sh- yeah. we should totally do that bucket story. list bucket list yeah all right well thank you Kristen. have a great day we'll talk soon you too thank you bye thanks for listening The Sourdough Podcast is produced by Michael Hilbert and edited by Caleb Sexton. All music is by Weston Perry. Thanks again to our sponsors of this episode, Bread Bosses and Tyler at Wire Monkey Shop. You can find links to their products and shops in the show notes of this episode. And be sure to head over to thesourdoughpodcast.com where you can find an exclusive sourdough sandwich loaf recipe from Kristen Dennis. You'll also find cookbook and gear recommendations, guest recipes, previous episodes, and more. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the podcast by purchasing a Sourdough Podcast t-shirt, coffee mug, or UFO alum. If you're strapped for cash, a five-star rating and review on iTunes would also go a long way, and you would help tremendously to share the podcast with others. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.